Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. This is a great thrill for me. Um, welcome to Club Book with John Moe. My name's Adam Wahlberg. I run a boutique book imprint in town called Think Peace Publishing that deals with mental health issues. And I think that's why the, the folks at Carver County Library thought of me to moderate this. And I'm delighted because I'm a huge John Moe fan. I first encountered John, uh, when I was living in Seattle in the late 90s, when he was doing a show on public radio called Rewind, which was hilarious. And I followed him ever since through his books, through his podcasts, through his variety shows. I'm a John Moe groupie. So this is a great thrill for me. Uh, before I uh, gush over John some more, let me quickly read you some info on who is responsible for pulling this great event together. Club Book! Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, which is made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, which is part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Carver County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. So thanks to all those fabulous organizations for bringing John to us. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. A purchase link to the hilarious world of depression will be available in the comments section of this live feed stream. Pick up a book at their store in St. Paul or have them deliver it personally to your door if you're in the area. And uh, I think that is uh, the, the background. Now we can get into the good stuff. John Moe. John is one of Minnesota's best known radio and podcast personalities. He's known for his work as a senior reporter and host of American public media enterprises, including Weekend America, Marketplace Tech Report, and the variety show Wits, which I love and desperately miss. His podcasting projects have included the hilarious world of depression in which Mo sets out to dispel stereotypes about depression and has included such amazing guests as Andrew Zimmern, John Green, Margaret Cho, Will Wheaton, and my personal favorite of his, Jeff Tweedy is an incredible interview if you ever get a chance to watch or listen to it. Last year, John published a book under the same name, The Hilarious World of Depression, and in it, he shares insights from his personal experiences and years of interviews and uh, research. Booklist says that Mo is exactly the right person to give an attentive, irreverent voice to those suffering with depression, which I totally 
agree with. So after a quick uh, presentation and reading coming up, coming up here by John, we'll have time for an audience Q&A. So just drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them over to me. If you prefer to ask a question anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. And now I will take a breath and say, please welcome the man of the hour, the wonderful John Moe. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate that. I get to, I get to learn so much about myself uh, from, <laughs> from hearing you talk about me. Um, thank you to Carver County Libraries and uh, everybody there who's just been so great in setting this up. So excited to be here. Um, I, I thought Melso is just a version of Mensa for people who aren't good spellers, but I don't think that's true. Um, and, and thank you to Red Balloon, uh, which is one of my favorite bookstores deep in my heart. Um, and now more than ever, and I'll just say this and then I'm gonna go into all this. Now more than ever is the time to support your local independent bookstore because it is an investment in wisdom and kindness in your community and what could be more important than that. And books are good. So um, it's, it's kind of hard to know where to start when I'm talking about the hilarious world of depression. Um, in the first draft of this book, I started with the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand that kicked off World War I. And uh, I turned in a version, a manuscript that was twice as long as it needed to be. And my editor said, well, I think we can start with cutting World War I from the book. Um, it was in the context though, of how World War I led to World War II. World War II led to the Nazis invading Norway, which is where my parents lived. And uh, we had had uh, a history of, of mental health issues on both sides of my family, uh, all more exacerbated by the trauma of you know, the Nazis showing up and living in uncertainty for several years. Um, it, it's uh, trauma can bring out the worst in any, any tendency that is existing there already. Um, so didn't wanna start with that and um, the history of my family. Uh, so I just kind of wove in the history of the family uh, throughout. I do write about how um, depression kicked in for me around seventh grade, which was a terrifying thing to happen because I didn't know what depression was. I, I sort of knew what the mood was, that it was sort of sad, but I wasn't sad, really. I was, I was um, despairing, I was terrified. I was uh, immobilized sometimes, but I didn't know what it was. So I just thought it was a, a dark, shameful thing. I thought, well, it, this might mean I'm what we call crazy. And all I knew from crazy was that that meant that I would be in a straitjacket in a, in a padded room. Most of my mental health education came from Bugs Bunny cartoons. Um, but sort of a, a, a top line view is that uh, I struggled in, with various things and I couldn't really figure out why. I just knew that there was this other side to me that I really tried to keep hidden until finally in my mid thirties, um, you know, this was probably even after Adam had heard me on the radio, still concealed then, but I was doing more radio stuff. I, I, had, uh, I was married, we were starting to have kids 
I owned a house, all the stress mounted and things started to really break apart. And I learned um, after, after my wife kind of uh, encouraged me to go to the doctor to get this thing checked out, I learned that I had a thing called uh, major depressive disorder, which was surprising. Um, the doctor figured it out in about two minutes. Um, he asked me some questions and looked me over and, and he said, said, yeah, this is depression. And I said, how did you know that just by looking me over for a few minutes? And he said, well, really, I knew when you came in, but this other stuff was just to confirm it. Um, you're kind of easy. You're kind of not a very interesting case. It's, you're, you're classical. And I said, well, how long has this been going on? He said, how long have you felt like this? Since about seventh grade. John, it's probably been going on since about seventh grade. <laughs> Again, super easy. And I said, okay, well, great. How do you... Uh, how do I get rid of it? How do, how do I turn okay again? And he said, uh, yeah, that's not really how it works. Um, it's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be a journey. You're, we're gonna find some things that, that might work. Um, you know, we could talk about meds. We could talk about counseling. We could talk about, uh, exercise and diet and meditation and prayer and all these other things that, that people are helped by hobbies. <laughs> he said, they're not all going to work. Some of them won't work at all, but maybe we could find a few that do. And then those might stop working and then we'll find something else. And it's just a matter of managing it. Um, and so I was kind of on that journey. And then I lost my brother to suicide. My older brother, Rick, died. And he had dealt with uh, depression for longer than I had. And his was exacerbated by a substance use issue um, with with originally marijuana and later on up to methamphetamine. And uh, he died because he didn't get the help that he needed. And he didn't get the help that he needed because he thought it was his fault, all these problems that he was having. Um, he thought that it was a weakness. He thought that it was a moral failing. He thought he just needed to be tougher. He thought that he just needed to think positively and none of that works because depression is an illness that doesn't care about that stuff really. It just wants to kill you um, as it did him. And I was at his memorial um, and realized that we could, you know, we're, as society, we're given two options. We could not talk about mental health as we've been not doing. We can continue to bury it. We can continue to keep it a secret. We continue to we can continue to not say suicide when someone died by suicide. We continue to make up euphemisms that just shames people who are suffering. And if we do all that as we've been, then people die. Um, like Rick died and other people are going to die. And and I said, or the other the other option is if Rick had talked to a therapist, if Rick had opened up about what was going on, if he had said, I'm in pain, I need someone to help me with my pain, just as if it had been a, a one of the stomach ulcers that Rick had when he was a teenager from worrying, um, then, then help might be available. It's not a guarantee, um, but there's a higher chance. So don't talk about it it gets worse. Talk about it, it might get better. It's stupid. Let's talk about it. And um, I decided that, you know, I'm not a, 
I'm not a doctor, I'm not a politician. Um, no one wants to hear my concept album uh, singing on the subject, but I can write and I can talk. And uh, I've always been an anomaly among, among Norwegians with actively sharing my feelings about everything. What up, Minnesota? You know what I'm talking about. Um, that line always gets a laugh in in-person readings. So I'm just, I'm feeling it from you, from your living room. Um, and so I started to talk about it wherever I could. Twitter, Facebook, uh, people would ask me to write articles. I'd, I'd do it. I started to spread. And, um, and so uh, I thought, well, maybe I'm onto something here. And the more I talked about it, the more people seemed to respond in a way that they didn't with the, the various dad jokes that I, that I would usually make. Um, and what struck me is like, okay, maybe I got a way to phrase this that gets through to people. Maybe I have a way of demystifying some of this language. And at the same time, maybe people are starving for it. Maybe people really are tired of living with this shame of having an illness that they never asked for because who the hell would ask for this? Um, so I started the show, The Hilarious World of Depression, thought of the worst title I could, and, uh, and my boss bid on it, and uh, did that show for a few years, and it became very, very popular. And um, I was approached to write a memoir, and I said, well, I don't want to write a, a memoir. I'm not, I'm not famous. Um, you know, who cares what I have to say? Um, and, and, uh, which was depression talking and my agent, my book agent, who I've known for many, many years said, I think you can help people because when someone's your friend for a long time, they know what you respond to. So I wrote this book and, uh, it's been a great journey to write it and a great journey to send it out into the world. And I know I'm helping people. Um, and, uh, so I'm going to read a little bit from it now, a memoir. Um, with some analysis and some issue treatment and, and various things along the way. Um, so this takes place, the book opens in an office in St. Paul um, in 2017, 2018, right around there. Um, so it op you know, opens very present day. And I go see a therapist um, named Julie, who it's not her real name. Um, she chose to not let me use it. Um, and she's still my therapist now. This is when, this is our first appointment. I was in Julie's office because there was finally a critical mass of significant events in my life that made seeking help seem viable and sort of urgent in a prevention of dying sort of way. One was that I was turning 50, which is only still middle age if you plan to be 100. Frankly, the sands of my mortal life were falling into the bottom part of the hourglass, and I was on deadline before my deadline. Also lately, I kept wanting to eh, not so much die as simply not be alive anymore. I didn't want to kill myself, God no, far from it. I just kept thinking about how nothingness, a nothingness in which I'm not even aware of nothingness would be sort of delicious. This, even though the world has wonderful stuff to offer like my family and ice cream and the NBA playoffs, I'd be driving to work or cleaning the kitchen or trying to sleep and boom, there came the thoughts of longing for the void, a void that I fully understood I would not perceive because that's the thing about voids. This feeling was morbid and yes, depressing, but it was also just pesky. 
What it really was, of course, was a mind that wanted to rest, but kept whirring along and pushing me to dark places. My unique brand of depression responds to stress. Specifically, it blows up under stress. When the going gets tough, I don't get amped up, I get despondent. I turn into a human version of a song by the Smiths. By the time I reached for the phone to call Julie for an appointment, I was basically Morrissey crooning alone in a darkened basement. Stressors included my soon-to-be high school senior son, Charlie, getting ready to apply to colleges, booking the next season of our show, and trying to do a good job writing the book you're reading right now. And yes, there's always stress in life. We all go through stuff. But the rate at which I metabolize stress into depression had gone through the roof. It was a brutally efficient machine. What do you have to be stressed about? The normies might have said. Normies are people who've never dealt with depression. Um, you have a family, a house, a car, a good job, just deal with it. As if I could simply do that, as if I chose this, as if I looked at the options available to me and they were clearly labeled perseverance and freaking the fuck out all the time. And then I calmly said, mm, yes, I select option B. Normies and saddies, people who have dealt with depression, are different, you see. Let's say there's a long bridge going over a high canyon, and there are two cars on it, one for the normies, one for the saddies. The normies are in a big land yacht of a Buick. It weighs a ton, low to the ground. When a stiff wind blows, the normies feel a mild push but continue driving, perhaps casually noting that it's getting windy out there. Then they go back to listening to, I don't know, Foo Fighters. The saddies are piled into a Model T with a sail on top of it for some reason. They see the wind coming, and it's all they can do to keep from being blown off the road and plunging into the canyon. The normies see the saddies struggle and wonder what the problem is, because to them, the wind doesn't seem that bad. Try being more positive, the normies shout, as the saddies Model T goes tumbling off the side, and the saddies deploy the parachutes they've gotten so used to wearing. I'd had good therapists in the past briefly, but all I ever took away from therapy was a somewhat clearer understanding of how messed up I was. That's helpful, sure, but it's not really progress. It's like knowing the brand of refrigerator you're locked in. And this was not the fault of the therapists I had seen who were all trained pros and good at their jobs. It was my fault or Clint D's fault, clinical depression, that's my nickname for it. I never wanted to go all that deep in therapy because that's where the monsters were. I'm talking about the really, really bad memories, the deep bruises, the scars, the events that significantly shape a person through injury. I'm talking about trauma. Rather than tackle the past, I was willing to settle for a tense ceasefire with it, letting my life be like Middle East countries that hate each other. There would be car, there would be car bombings, I understood, but a homeland is a homeland. I had gone through life with the belief, often heard in simple-minded quarters of popular psychology, that the past is the past, and you just have to move on. Let it go, the simple-minded say, again, as if no one had ever tried that before. Don Henley and Glenn Fry wrote a song, actually, along these lines called Get Over It. My response song would be called Fuck Off, Don Henley and Glenn Fry. I still hope to record that one day. I suspect most people who choose the willfully simplistic Henley Fry method are people who've never had much unpleasant stuff in their past to begin with, because this get over it notion is some bullshit. If you can't understand your past, 
then you don't really know how your mind got to where it is now because you simply don't know yourself. So that's from the book. That's from the beginning of the book. Um, quick update, <laughs> soon after the book uh, came out, we're in the midst of COVID. I got laid off from Minnesota Public Radio who, uh, who uh, had produced the show. I didn't realize until I just did this reading right now that driving into that company on a regular basis was causing suicidal ideation. Um, and at the advice of my lawyer, that's probably all I should say about what it's like to work at Minnesota Public Radio. Um, but I, uh, I have a new show coming out uh, at the end of this month. It's going to be live. It's with a different network. And I don't think I'm allowed to announce the name of it yet. But uh, it's going to be a bigger show. Uh, I'm going to do a lot more episodes. And it's about depression and anxiety and trauma and stress. Um, and it's going to be 48 episodes per year. It's going to be a really uh, big deal. It's the best work I've ever done. I'm so happy to be doing it. So um, I have a lot of love for this book. Um, and uh, that title might be retired, but the effort goes on and the effort will go on <laughs> as long as I have breath in my lungs. Oh, I mean, I am so thrilled that there's going to be this, you know, uh, new... Uh, forum coming out. I can't wait for it. I Me too. listen to all the pods and I love the book. I just, I just <laughs> think it's, it's wonderful. Thanks. So just a simple, yeah, for the rest of uh, 651, we'll probably do like a half hour of discussion and, you know, feel free to send questions and I'll, I'll uh, fit them in and then we'll just keep it real kind of conversational yeah. and wrap nothing's it up off limits, topic. Adam and listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't be shy out there. Well, I mean, you, you're very self-deprecating about the title, but I know I told you this before. I love the title. I mean, I follow this stuff pretty carefully. And, you know, you see a lot of campaigns out there and they're all really earnest. And I'm in league with all of them. Uh, but, you know, they're all really kind of like, let's make it OK. Let's fight stigma. And the minute I, I you announced that you're doing this podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression, I thought, that's the way to do it. I mean, John's cracked the code. This is the way to make it kind of not scary. And uh, yeah, but it's also you're not shaving it off. You're not like being glib about it. You know, the opposite. It's just the way you framed it. I think you did a huge service to the mental health community just calling that title. I think it's a genius title. I was going to ask you when. Thanks. Can you remember the moment you actually did it? Kind of crack you up, and then you sat back yeah. and thought, "Wait a second, I, I, I could really call it that." That's exactly what happened. I, I was uh, I was talking to um, you know I say my boss is a, more a friend of mine than a boss, Peter Clowney, and um, and I just thought, I mean, it was based in this thought of like I know all these comedians who deal with this stuff. I've dealt with this stuff for years, and I've been a comedy nerd my whole life, making comedy, consuming comedy. I live for it, and part of it is just the the reinterpretation of the world in a new way that makes you laugh. And most of what the laughs come from with a humane comedian is a recognition of something that you have in common that you didn't know you had in common with other people, right? And so there's always the line of like, he's saying what we're all thinking. Um, and that's kind of on purpose. And so I would think about um, the, the sense of relief when a comedian said something that I had thought that I thought was just my secret, like the, the, 
the exhale of relief is where the laugh lives. Like, you know, and then just get it. You just bounce it into a laugh. Um, And so, so I knew there was something there. um, And I knew that there's a lot of intelligence in comedy. And so that, that seemed to be a good fit as well. And I knew a lot of comedians. And so that, that was going to make it easier. Um, And, and yeah, like I thought, okay, how do I want to handle mental health? I could do, you know, and I would still love to do a show like with the Mayo Clinic about what, what parts of your brain activate in certain, you know, as much as they know, which there's so much about the brain, nobody knows. Um, But I I thought, yeah, but if you say Maria Bamford's on the show, people are going to be more likely to download it. And Maria can talk about the direct experience, which is the foundation of certainly of, of the show I'm doing now and in large part the show I did before. And so that's, it's, uh, you know, I always compare it to when my kids were young and had ear infections, but didn't want to take medicine. I'd mix in the medicine with a little bit of strawberry ice cream and then they'd eat it. So like the comedy is the strawberry ice cream that, that gets the medicine yeah. in you. Uh, I think it's a great focus. And I think Maria Bamford's insights and some of these folks have really gone through it. And the book has got so many of my heroes in it. You got Andy Richter in there. You got Pat Oswalt. Uh, and I do pay attention to what they say because they're really intelligent, but they also suffer. And uh, I will and Bamford, say that I will say that the first guest on the new show is going to be Pat Oswalt. So that's our premiere. I haven't announced that anywhere else. <laughs> Well, that's exciting. I mean, yeah. he's a uh, he's lived the last couple of years have been tough. So I've worked. Yeah. I think as fans of this, we've all been worried about his balance. But he seems like he has rebounded. But still, how do you ever yeah. really? So yeah. I'll be I'll be hear what you have to say with him. Uh, did you have any backup titles? I was just curious. What else were you going to call? Um, yeah, I I mean I for the show I didn't really have a backup title um, because I've got this thing. I love long titles. Um, and I think it's because I've been writing for McSweeney's for so long that I like the the sort of over-explained title for some reason. And then, you know, I, I encourage them to decorate this. You know, this is from the original tile design for the, the old show. I said, I want it to look like a, a vaudeville poster. Um, mm. You know, so like I wanted the entertainment to re- really pop into people's heads. Oh, the branding's beautiful. Um, and I... Th- I uh, follow up on the comics um, choice. Not that it's all about comics, it's also musicians and it, it, a lot of you know creative types, entertainers, um, songwriters. But I really respond to the comedians. Um, and I was gonna, the question for you was that, I was like, oh, yeah, you wonder if, you know, comics have this kind of reputation of being deep feeling and deeply bruised and, and, mm-hmm. and struggling, or it could just be that they talk about it in a more eloquent and memorable way than anybody else does. Yep. And either way, you know, the listener wins. So that's why I think it was just so great for you and so much time um, interviewing them. But I was wondering if you care to comment on like the comedic mind, is it that they're kind of just more interesting in describing what most of us have or do they really have it maybe a little deeper? I mean, I'm kind of agnostic. I, I Sort of the original idea of the show was I'm going to talk to some comedians. I'm going to figure this out. Like I'm going to figure out do our are depressed people drawn to comedy, uh, or does comedy make people depressed? And there's no conclusive answer. And so, like Patton says, 
there's no more uh, there's no more depressed comedians than there are depressed dentists. And it's just that if your dentist talked to you about suicidal ideation, it would be bad for business and you'd want to get a new dentist. Um, actually, dentists are some of the most depressed people in, you know, according to research. Um, but then, you know, other, other people like Dana Gould told me, yeah, it's, it's kind of set up for a depressed person, the life of a, a traveling comic. You, you don't, you get to go on stage and have a conversation that you have rehearsed. So there's no risk, depressed people and anxious people. Um, you know exactly what you're going to say. People will laugh. You know when they're going to laugh. Um, they won't say anything in return most of the time. And then, you know, you could go back to your hotel room and drink vodka all night. It's a brilliant scenario. Um, and so, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of mixed on it. I think, I think if you, I tell you what I found is a lot of people who are first generation Americans are depressed and going into comedy. So like I've talked with Aparna Nancherla about this. I've talked with other people. And I think, you know, when I was growing up, my parents were Norwegian immigrants. There was a lot about American culture I didn't understand and they weren't available to teach me. And so the whole world seemed kind of ridiculous all the time. Like, what are these strange rituals that are happening at my friends' houses? And, you know, back home with my family, we watched Carol Burnett. We watched as much comedy as we could because, you know, it, it was sort of a universal language. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I loved reading that in the book about your uh, rituals around Carol Burnett. She certainly was for me. And uh, I've, I'm a, I devoured 70s sitcoms. I can oh, recite yeah. the three company uh, lineup. Absolutely. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a way to cope. And, uh, and I, I, again, I really love that this is your focus. I mean, there have been kind of these analytical neuro deep dives and that's cool. Like Andrew Solomon did like yeah. 8,100 yeah. pages on a noonday demon. And the conclusion was, and I love Solomon, but it really was what you said earlier. No one really knows. Yeah. No one, there, yeah. there's, there's no like immediate diagnosis. You really have to you know, treat behaviors and then just try things. And then if, um, if I had a brain like Andrew Solomon's, I might've written that one too. You know, or if I, <laughs> if I was scientifically inclined, I might've written that one, but you know, I grew up on the Jeffersons. And so this is the book you get instead. <laughs> well, I love that you did it. I mean, you had mentioned earlier that you're wondering if this is a book people would be starving for. And I can say, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm someone that have had, has had issues with anxiety and I've lost people to suicide and these thoughts can be scary and you introducing to folks who have gone through it it's what you said it's like it's keeping it a secret that's so toxic i mean i used to tell people i mean the depression itself is a drag you don't have much energy and you don't want to do a lot of things but it's the shame that'll kill you i mean yeah. being ashamed of having it that is lethal and that i think you had in your book the first step from saying i maybe should I, I should make an appointment like your it sounds like your wife encouraged you that's a huge that's like a grand canyon leap for a lot of people mostly guys they just don't want to make that appointment that's yeah. the biggest thing if you can make that appointment you know you're you, 90 percent of the work's done but so many people don't and so i yeah. think your book making it not shameful is such a service. And it's, again, it's fun to read. It's not like eating your vegetables. It's great. 
Well, part of the reason that I went in I, and I write about when I went in um, and Jill said, well, I think you should make an appointment. And I said, no, you know, I, I'm, I'm just a little, I'm just really busy lately. And she's like, yeah, that you've been saying that for years now. Maybe this is just life and not a busy time. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I just, that seems like too much to go in. And I said that I didn't want to pay the copay, which our insurance at the time was $10 copay. I wasn't worth a Hamilton to myself. Um, I didn't think I was worth 10 bucks. And, and I said, I, I don't want to waste the doctor's time as if that's anything other than that's what the doctor is there for is to talk to people. And finally she said, well, okay, you don't want to do this for yourself, but do you love me and the kids? I said, yeah, more than anything. Mm -hmm. She says, great. Do it for us. Don't do it for you. Do it for us. So that was a good Boy, that's move. What, <laughs> that was a good mood. Well, it's that thing you mentioned earlier. You, you're not even really, it's society seems to tell us it's something you're not even sure is anything. And so you don't yeah. want to, maybe you don't have great self-esteem and you don't, uh, and you're awkward talking about it. It's hard to go in there and say what you need to say. Well, it's a, it's it, a it symptom. Like yeah. It's a symptom of the illness to prevent you from getting help for the illness. The illness is protecting itself from getting caught. It's very sinister. <laughs> you lay out a lot of these, uh, connections in very clear a very clear way that's very helpful um thanks well we got our first question uh the questions are popping in i love it here's one from one of our viewers how did your family respond when they learned your diagnosis especially the hereditary components and what it might mean for them um well i mean there i don't know if the they mean family of origin or, or current family but um the the current family um, you know, my, my wife was the one who suggested it, obviously, and we knew that stuff ran in the family and, and ran through like that. Um, and then as, as my kids have grown up, um, you know, I have a, my oldest is a sophomore at St. Olaf right now, and, and uh, they've just grown up knowing that it's a thing you talk about, like, okay, well, how's your mental health doing? And, and you know, like what are some questions we could ask to kind of evaluate it. So, you know, they keep an eye on it, just like they try to remember where they put their shoes. Um, we've made it non-mystical. Um, and so that's been, that's been a real positive thing in, uh, in my life. When my, my youngest was really young, she would see like the word depression printed somewhere and she'd be like, dad, dad, that's depression as if it was a long lost friend. Um, but uh, my family, um, is Norwegian, like I said, Norwegian American. And a lot of these things don't get talked about. And there is suicide in my family tree. There is um, all sorts of uh, depression and, you know, uh, a lot of kind of erratic behavior. Um, and so it's, it's all over the place. It doesn't get talked about a lot. And the, the hardest conversations I had to have were with my mother, because you know, she grew up with, during the war, you know, during imprinted lifelong trauma um, happening then. And then her husband, my dad, drank and her son used uh, substances and, and died by suicide. And so her concern was, I, I don't want people to think that, that I was bad. And I said, no, you weren't, you weren't bad. You, you did 
everything you could and some things were beyond your control. Uh, some things that happened to you were beyond your control. Um, but the big thing I, I communicated to her was uh, there are no bad guys in this book. You know, there's no villain in this book. There's no one being blamed in this book. It's about the abundance of mental illness and the effects of trauma. Um, and there's a lot of love in the book. And so when she got, when she got the book, um, you know, she, she started hearing about it from other people who were reading it and saying very nice things about, about it and about her from, from it. She got a copy of the book and she put it in her closet in her apartment and uh, just like covered it with a coat, I think, because she didn't <laughs> want, you know, she was scared to read it. And so it was like this forbidden thing. And then finally she, she read it, started to read it and read it cover to cover. And she said, oh, it's so nice. I'm like, yeah, it's nice. Mm -hmm. It's, I wrote it to help people. And, um, and now she's real proud of it. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. I mean, family dynamics are tricky on this topic i mean there mine i had just kind of garden variety i was an anxious hyper kid you know and it didn't catch up into me and to me in my late 30s but i grew up in a swedish family and boy howdy no one ever talked about this stuff to me and i you know uh and i would have liked that i think it would have i could have started earlier um doing the things i need to do so it all got sublimated into ingmar bergman films in sweden it's all there <laughs> no, I mean, who do you think playing chess on the beach? <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, you don't want to turn to Max von Sydow for comfort, but you take what you can get. And you know, <laughs> we had, uh, you know, there, there was just this big interview with the royal family about like this poor yeah. Megan. You know, she went and was told not to go. She wanted to get hospitalized, and she was told it would look poorly. On, I mean, that, that's medieval. I mean, that I, I can't. You know, uh, I would think we're past that, but we're not past that. We're not past that. So. No, it's it's still, I mean, even like I've tried to kind of train myself off the word stigma even because a, a friend of mine who's a, a therapist said, you know, when you say stigma, you're just talking about discrimination, you know, and we, and, but stigma, we, we kind of dress it up a little bit and say it's about a particular thing. All it means is that you're judging someone not based on, who they are as an individual person, but from your uh, worst generalizations about a thing they have no control over. And that's, you can call it stigma, but that's just discrimination. And so, you know, that's, that's something that, uh, that, it, you know, I, I keep in mind, but like, I, you know, the first time I started talking about my own mental health in public forums, it was terrifying. I didn't want to miss out on jobs or opportunities or friendships because people thought I was I was unstable or dangerous or you know thought that because someone has a mental disorder they're not aware of the reality of the world because you know except for a very few of disorders you do you know and um, and it, it was completely the opposite I've never had a single person say you shouldn't talk about this but I've met oh, so many people who come to me because of this issue. And uh, and that's what gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I was gonna ask you about that. Um, like when you went up on Twitter, I remember, because I followed you, because I've been a fan since like the late 90s. And so I remember when you did that, I think it was 2009. And that must've been really scary. But if I remember correctly, you just got a wave of support, right? Yeah. 
Yep. Well, and again, it's it's the same reason that talking about this works. It's the same reason people, um, you know, hopefully not the only reason, but one of the reasons people might buy the book is that they're hungry for it and that they're relating to it. And they're saying, yeah, that, that happened to me too. And so I, I've always framed it in like, you know, here's my personal experience. And and it just comes comes back a hundredfold every single time. And, and um, you know, that's what it's gonna take. Like it's gonna take that in order to get to the, the point where mental illness is treated the same way we treated litter in the seventies or drunk driving in the eighties. We just all got together and said, screw this this is you know terrible let's change it and so that's what that's what we need i think we need a broad paradigm shift it's like wear your seatbelt. it can be as simple as take your meds and uh, i mean yeah. i'm with i love your languages saddies and normies like uh and i went public really on social in 2013 and yeah it's people will rally if you let them they're still scared but sure i've scary. never regretted it um yeah. yeah it's i think that's the number one thing um that's a, a really good first step to uh, to think about. Um, but I find normies boring. I got nothing to talk to with normies. Oh, no. Rather we're, <laughs> we're all normies and we're all saddies is, is the payoff. <laughs> I should categorize it. But I really do find the folks who struggle and are willing to just share it. Because, again, they're 98% functional for the most part, if they're lucky. But yeah. they might have to treat something. And I'm like, well, I want to hear about that. So, yeah, I... Uh, I, if anything, I, I, I have a stigma against normies, I think. So, um, <laughs> um, I, quite, yeah. I had a question. It's a kind of, and I bet there are people on this call who can relate. I can kind of relate on trying to achieve yourself out of the hole. And I, that, I really respond in your book to that. You have this great, like you are, you know, and I'm sure you'll say that you're still struggling with wanting to do the next thing, even though you've had this amazing career, but that's, that's just part of the, That's just a symptom. A lot of people drag around. I drag it around. Uh, I just blew a lot of time and money on a master's degree. I don't think I'll ever use, but I, <laughs> I wanted to do it. Well, you had this great interview with Andy Ricker, which you put in the books and the hole doesn't get away, go away. In fact, the hole gets bigger, you know, yeah. the more you, the more you try to and, shove into that. I, I had a, yeah, and that's the idea, and I write about it in the book of like the if I just get this next promotion, if I just get this book deal, if I just get this girl to go out with me, you know, that would be happy. And so, how could depression exist when a happy thing has occurred? Because, and that's because depression as a disorder is not an emotion; it's a disorder. Um, and so, you know, I spent many years, and I still do it. You know, I still think like okay, this time I'm going to prove it. And like, you know, I wrote a book and I'm like, okay, I need a second book in order to show that the first book wasn't a fluke. And the best example I found of this came after this book came out. I did an event um, that was uh, based in Washington, DC. I was at home, of course. Um, and I invited a friend of mine as a guest on that. And that's, and his name's Sean Doolittle. And he was a pitcher for the Washington Nationals. Uh, he was their closer and when they won the World Series. And he, Sean had started out as a, as a first baseman and, uh, and struggled and got injured. And he said, Here, here's what I did, John. I thought, if I could just get to the major leagues, then, you know, lifetime goal achieved. I'll be happy. All this. And he struggles a lot with anxiety and some with depression. 
This will all go away. So he gets converted into a pitcher. Suddenly, you know, he's got a 95 mile an hour arm, makes it to the major leagues. With the Oakland A's, he says, you know, this is, this is great. I'm still not okay. Maybe if I make an all-star team, uh, then I'll feel okay. Um, and so he makes an all-star team. Yeah, but I need to prove that it wasn't a fluke by making a second all-star team. Makes a second all-star team. Goes to the Washington Nationals. Maybe if, like, surely nobody who goes and plays in the World Series could be struggling with these things. Gets to the World Nobody who wins the World Series wins the world series <laughs> wins the goddamn world series and and uh you know then he finally kind of had a come to jesus moment with himself and he, and he said and john that's when i read your book <laughs> like right oh. after the world series and i thought oh it's not the world series <laughs> it's not gonna solve it but so many really smart people me included just never figure that out or take a long time or take a lot of reminding they really do. I mean, it's, I've had this interesting evolution with the word perfectionism. I used to think, well, that's not me. You know, I, I, I've never put that pressure to be a straight A person, although I like to achieve, but perfectionism also can just mean you're not being kind to yourself. Yeah. That's basically what it means. And boy, all these people that keep thinking they're going to achieve their way to, uh, uh, you know, resolving this, it generally does. I always remember this quote from Prince who said after Purple Rain, he said, uh, I made it to the mountaintop. There's nothing there. <laughs> and then he slid into a real, you know, uh, funk is the appropriate a word. Funky funk in his a funky funk. Yeah. But so you really have to put in the work to kind of what Richter says in your book is the hole's always there. You have to do your best to get comfortable with it. Yeah. It's not the hole's it's the hole. Harder, and, it's been harder during COVID because there's there's fewer things to to uh, use to fill the time. So well, that, that's but the thing about perfectionism, too, that's something I didn't understand for a long time is um, I always thought, oh, that's people who do things until they're perfect. But nothing is ever perfect. Um, nothing can be perfect, um, except maybe parts of the song Gimme Shelter. But aside from that, <laughs> and, and, so, um, and so those are people who are just very frustrated at the impossibility of uh, lining up their wants with their reality. And so those are people who don't make things perfect. Those are people who are just in torment. I, you know, and I, I see it a lot of my friends who are workaholics and yeah. uh, it, it, but these things, you know, sometimes that happens in your twenties and you figure it out later and you do your best. Here's a question uh, from Facebook. Uh, since there's all this entrenched stigma, do you have trouble recruiting guests for your projects around depression? It's so intimate after all. Uh, I'm not asking you to name names though, but do you have a hard time? Like, uh, you know, this person would be so eloquent, but they're not sure. You can't see it, but I'm looking at a wall of post-its on my wall right now. Um, no, uh, I mean, when I, when I started the show, I went with a lot of people who I already knew and just said, hey, trust me on this. <laughs> and so that's why, uh, Peter Sagal, Andy Richter, Paul F. Tompkins, Maria Bamford, some of these people who I knew, they're like, yeah, we'll take the plunge. We trust you. Um, and yeah, there have been a handful of people who say, not ready to tell it right now. Um, and then, and then, but we get pitched a lot of people. We get pitched people all the time. We're like, yeah, I'm, I want to talk about it. I've heard the show. Um, you know, we get contacted by 
guests themselves who say, hey, I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. And so the more, the more people know my name and the more people know the work I do, the, the easier it gets. And, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty gratifying. I mean, I did like something that I've, I've run into a few times is I'll say, hey, so-and-so, um, I know you've worked with such and such. Um, do you think that that's a person who, who might want to come on and talk about their struggles? And could you introduce me? And they'll say, yeah, I can do that. But also I struggle with those things. So like so many people I've discovered that way. Um, it's, it's really remarkable. The, the one person who, who turned me down was a, a really good friend of mine, John Hodgman. And I said, hey, John, do you want to be on this show? And he's like, he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm fine. I've never dealt with any of those things. <laughs> I'm feeling great and always have. I'm like, oh, God damn it. He's like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, because I know he was on Wits. And uh, it, yeah, I would have liked to have heard him comment on it. And good yeah. for him that he doesn't have it weighing on him. Oh, here's an interesting question that I think you can relate to more than anyone, because um, now you're in this kind of public figure role. Here's a question. I'm very transparent with my depression struggles. What's surprising is I've been approached for advice by friends and colleagues as if I were an expert on the topic. Mm. I'm not an expert and feel out of my depth. Is this something you've experienced yourself? Any thoughts on how to meet those earnest calls for advice? Yeah, I, I always take pains to point out I'm not a doctor, not a therapist, um, you know, and, but, I, I used to say that a lot and avoid giving anything, even smelling of advice. And uh, finally, friends of mine who are therapists and listeners who are therapists would say, you know, you've lived and you've lived through some shit. So, you know, don't sell yourself short on your own experiences. I mean, people should know if they're getting advice from a professional or not, of course. The way I usually walk it is is uh, I'll say, well, in my experience, here's what's happened to me. Um, and, you know, if, if you're struggling, if you are, if you're in the disorder territory, which is, I mean, there's nothing magical about the disorder term. All it means is that you're not able to live your life in an, the easy way you otherwise would be able to. Like if you, if you're struggling, but you're still getting to work, getting clean, uh, you know, taking showers, food on the table, um, then you're just struggling. It might not be a disorder. If you're worried about it, go to a professional. If those basic things aren't getting done, might be a disorder. You should go talk to somebody, start getting a plan going of how you're going to address it. But in terms of like, you know, how do I tell my family this is what I'm struggling with? I would just say, you know, if that was me that they came to, I'm like, well, here's what happened when I talked to my family. Here's a way I wish I would have handled it. You know, here's here are the unique things about talking about this with my particular family. But I always tell people like it's your journey. You know, I can I can tell you what happened to me. A therapist can tell you what they know. A psychiatrist can tell you what they know. The Bible can tell you what it knows. The Quran can tell you what it knows. But you know, you're on you're on your own journey, and be kind to yourself and know that you're that you're in the learning process, and uh, and that you know, there's many steps to be taken. Oh, there is. Yeah, I always say, you know, you, if it's somebody you know, and maybe, you know, what they like, and you are great in your book, you list albums you listen to at the end of the book that help yeah. and all the rest, but those are just kind of the 
get you out of a short term. I mean, but the best advice is always see a doctor, you know, yeah. and I always, which it sounds well, like what you say, which is, and, and be willing to see, you have a, you were great in your book talking about how you had to see a lot of therapists going from your Seattle to Minneapolis. So did I to get the right fit. Yeah. You, I mean, it's you're like still dating looking for help. It yeah. is. And people don't know that you're still looking for help. You sort of think I, all right, I'll work with this first person. And that often is not the way to go, but you don't know that. And the other, the other practical thing that I didn't know until a couple of years ago that I think is really valuable. Like if you call to make an appointment with a psychiatrist, they might say there's a five month wait list. Uh, you know, we can book you in September or like something like that. And it's only going to get even more intense uh, when people are recovering from the uh, trauma of going through COVID. Like there's a huge wave of demand coming and not much more supply. But if you're not, if you're really in pain, if you're really struggling, go to a GP, go to a general practitioner, go to the family doctor, go to a clinic, go to an urgent care clinic. Those people can, can prescribe, they can find ways, you know, often if you're in real distress, you know, it doesn't mean you're gonna take this med every day for the rest of your life, but they can get you something that might get you to a more stable place and come up with a plan for you to get longer term help. So, you know, the, the, the American medical system has a lot of flaws. And one of them is the wait to see a psychiatrist. It's just preposterous. If you're young and smart, and you're wondering what to do for a job, become a psychiatrist, you'll work forever and you'll make a lot of money. But, um, but if you're in distress immediately and you get that delay, don't say, well, I guess I'll never get help, get to a doctor. That's very good advice because there are waiting delays but even psychiatric nurses you can sometimes get into and just see somebody and start the conversation and yeah that's really so important here's a i'm going to combine a couple reader questions uh as we're uh, winding down here uh one you kind of answered this again but i'll ask it again or you already alluded to it do you have any suggestion for people who are in denial that you can see it kind of like your wife could see it and like any thoughts on how you kind of gently suggest it? And yeah. the other is what other speakers and books and podcasts do you look to that you like on this topic? Wow. Um, I mean, one thing I learned about living with a, a father and a brother who are addicts is that it's hard to convince somebody else that they have a problem. Um, I think you can, I know some people say, oh, hey, I was reading this really interesting article about people with depression and how it sneaks up on you and how you don't know. Um, yeah. you know and, and most of the time, somebody will like, I get it. I see what you're trying to do. Um, <laughs> you know, and just end it with a, you know, I wonder about you and I really care about you. I wonder if that's something you've looked at. Yeah. You know, or, hey, I read John Moe's book and he said this. Um, you know, so you could be kind of oblique about it or, you know, depending on the relationship and depending on who you are, you could just say, you could do like Jill Mo did and just say, hey, I'm worried about you. Have you thought yeah. this? Um, in terms of other people who I read, you know, the, the William Styron book, um, whose name escapes me now, it's just a little slip of a thing. You could read it in an afternoon. It's still wonderful. Um, yeah. I've been listening to a lot of Brene Brown podcasts because I think she just sort of lays the truth on the line in a really accessible but pretty deep way. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I like a lot of what I read is to kind of get away from the, the full-time depression job. So I could recommend yeah, the Bob yeah. Dylan memoir. Um, 
but you know i mean it's it's just like finding a therapist like try keep trying things until you find something that's that speaks to you um yeah you know and and then and then listen to yourself as you dive into that well it 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 often can require that outside so for that viewer i mean it's scary. I don't think I've ever, to be honest, been on the other side where I've suggested I've received. I had a guy I didn't even know of, this colleague, who once came up to me and gave me an Eckhart Tolle book. I'm mm. like, why does he give me an Eckhart Tolle book? But then I thought, oh, it's pretty obvious. And you wrote that in your book. It's like people yeah. know. People yeah, know. you, you yeah. think you're being really clever, but like, come on. <laughs> yeah. People see but, they that gradually got me and then i i really looked to books like that's why i think your book is making such an impact but i, I read styron's i read sylvia platt's book i read all the tough books because i was in a pretty bad way and that kind of was comforting and then i made the appointment it took a while yeah so uh and i love that in your book you you at the end you mentioned several strategies i, I don't want to give away all of them but that people can try as far as you know, um, livability stuff like your, your first one was get a dog, which everyone says, but you give a, and a, that, you know, uh, a real great uh, section of your book talking about dogs and also music. And I'm like, yep. well, yeah, if, if, if these are things, as you say, you respond to, remember to do them. I, I mean, yep. depression takes away your energy. So you have to kind of psych yourself into doing the things that if um it's tricky but if you remember what you respond to then just try to do them i guess it's a it's a bit of a marie kondo thing like find the, the things in your in your mind that that bring you joy and throw out other things that are getting in the way i mean to me yeah. like just this afternoon i watched a bunch of bigfoot videos on youtube i don't know why it always makes me so happy but it it returns me to something basic and good in my mind and uh i don't i just don't question it it works you know, like, uh, I mean, I've started doing meditation. I've started doing the the um, John Kabat-Zinn mindfulness-based stre uh, stress reduction meditations, and that works. And so, it, I, you know, keep trying on, it's like pants, you know, keep trying on pants until you're like, oh, I like these pants, you know. I love it. Uh, I know we're running short. I'm going to do one last question. I'm going to combine them again, just because they're on your other great work. I mean, and I think most people here know but we had one question about wits and one question about dear luke uh -huh. which i loved wits Wits was this great variety show i can list all your musical guests and it was wonderful so maybe if you can give one memory of your time on wits and then uh this person wants to know if you might do another book in the vein of uh Dear Luke, I mean, I love the Horowitz versus Horowitz lawsuit chapter, but uh... <laughs> yeah, there's a uh, there's a lot of ideas in terms of books. Uh, I'll probably be on the I'll probably be on the mental health kick for a while, book wise, but I'm gonna continue writing for McSweeney's, and a lot of those ideas show up there. Um, you know, in in terms of in terms of wits, there's so many great memories that when it ended, I kind of think we decided that it didn't. Um, so we did one reunion show in the fall of 2019. And, uh, you know, I'm still really close with John Munson and Janie Winterbauer, who I, I feel like formed the heart of it uh, with me. And we're planning to do more. Um, I don't know if we'll record them. I don't know if we'll call them wits. But, um, you know, when we did that one show, we were planning to do a lot more. And so I expect that to resume because it's a wonderful celebration of life. And you could call it wits, but 
APM doesn't have a copyright on the idea of joy and performance. So we can go ahead and keep doing that for ourselves. I love it was just right in my pocket. I loved it. You had literary conversations, sketch comedies, uh, and musical guests. I had season tickets. Like well, I, I know that we can get a lot of those guests back in a hurry if we needed to. Like if if we were doing one and called up Neil Gaiman and he wasn't doing anything, he'd probably say, Oh, well, get on a plane. Because we turned Neil Gaiman into a sketch comedy actor. He knew that was possible. You had such impressive folks. I mean, you know, Josh from Josh Ritter to uh, Rufus, to Amy Mann. I, I I adored it. I was so sad that it went off. And I'm glad you brought up the local band because I, I think unfairly, I always focus on. Oh God, that's right. I saw Josh Ritter that night. But Munson and Janie Winterbar were always fantastic. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're you, fantastic. What did you call them? They were the wits. Uh, oh, the witnesses. witnesses. John Munson and the witnesses. A lot of credit. I mean, just while we're on here, uh, Larissa Anderson was the producer of that show, and she did a lot of great work getting that talent. And and that show existed because of uh, the Legacy Amendment, just like this series, the Ducks and Dancers. Oh. That's how we got that one started. Um, so you know, I'm like. And when we were doing it, I'm like, oh, but it needs Minnesota talent. Who's the Minnesota talent? And somebody said, John, you've been here many years. You are now a Minnesotan. I'm like, oh, God, am I okay? <laughs> so I'm still, I still don't really understand hockey. And, uh, you know, I still uh, refer to hot dish as casserole, but apparently I'm Minnesotan enough. And that's what counts. <laughs> well, I loved it. Uh, uh, well, I was, I had a, a thought on, on, uh, Ah, went out of my head on, on the witnesses and on the music, but it was it was great. I had many. Oh, you you once opened you and I think Josh Ritter were decked up by Jaime's haberdashery. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah, night? yeah, yeah. Jaime's. We got a lot and of was like, from Jaime's. I was like, what is that? I hadn't even heard of it. And then I went and bought shoes. So you know, there yep. you go. Well, great John, nice. this has been wonderful i think we probably have to let you go and uh um any final thoughts and then i'll do a, the wrap up no i mean adam thank you so much for this and thanks to, to carver county library and for everybody who made this possible it's a you know it's a great way to connect with with brains and hearts uh series like this and it's it's so important and and you know i think the pandemic has taught us the importance of libraries and i think like I said, support your local independent bookstore, support Red Balloon, support the one closest to you. There's, there are, you know, just find it. You can buy your books um, online from those places. They're doing great work and they're gonna, they're gonna help us and they're gonna need our help beyond this too. So, so vote with your dollars to keep those folks going strong. That wraps up our Carver County Library event with John Moe. Make sure to catch our next club book event with Mbolyo Mbuye. Cameroonian American novelist Mbolyo Mbuye burst onto the literary scene in 2016 with her best-selling debut, Behold the Dreamers. Her latest, How Beautiful We Were, is a contemporary fable pitting a small African village against an unscrupulous oil company. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, Sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubBookMN. 
And if you enjoy these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library. <laughs>